We've got a copy of God's Word. I invite you to turn to the New Testament, to James. As if you've been journeying along with us, you'll know we've been studying this New Testament letter by the Apostle James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. And we find ourselves in the second half of, of chapter 2. So we're edging closer to the halfway mark. And we're going to read from verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. James, James chapter 2, I'm beginning to read at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, a person, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. And we know God will bless the public reading of his word. I remember having a conversation with a friend a number of years ago. A friend's a little bit older, and he owns a business. And from time to time, he will have to conduct interviews as he offers jobs out and wants to recruit more people. And he recalled one Episode one incident that took place where he was going through a batch of interviews and it had been a long day of interviewing person after person after person and you just don't want to be that person who's interviewed last, don't you? Maybe we've had that experience. It's awful because we know the interviews have just had enough. And as he was reading this guy's CV before he came in, he sort of was taking notes of little things that he said. And one of the things that he noted and he's seen on his kind of the the hobbies and interest sections of his CV was that this guy said he liked to run. So my friend who was conducting the interview noted this. And in came the guy And what you need to know about this guy, as my friend recalled to me, was this guy did not look 
like a runner. He came in and let's say he um, did not have the physique of Mo Farah. And he also came in and it was very, very evident that he was partial to a cigarette or maybe 20 before the, before the interview. And my friend was looking down and he was looking at this fact that he had made this claim that he was a runner and that he ran every week. And he looked at this guy and it was the end of the day and he just kind of blurted it out. Mate, you don't run. And the guy just did not know how to react. The, the cold beads of sweat started to come down his forehead. He knew that he had said something on his CV that was not at all true. And often we can do similar things, can we? We make claims without ever expecting them to be challenged And in one sense, it's easy to make a claim and kind of expect to receive the benefits and the rewards of it. But it's another thing to make a claim and then to allow it to actually affect your life. Side note, we should be very careful in what we include on our CVs and from the story that I've already shared. But as we arrive at the the second half of James chapter 2, we find James the Apostle And he's tackling and challenging those who are making claims. But they have absolutely no evidence to back it up. What's the claim? Well, the claim is that they have faith in Jesus. But the response categorically from James is, well, show me the evidence. What does true faith in Jesus Christ mean? look like? Well, the answer given by James and what he wants us to say and think about is well, look at the life. Look at the fruit. Is it active? Is that person's faith active? Is it not someone who only is it someone who not only hears the word but also does the word? And as we think of these verses, I just want to consider these verses under the headings of two questions, which I, I feel that James is implicitly asking. And he starts off negatively. We want to think about, well, what does this dead faith look like? And then he moves on to the positive and we'll think about what does real faith look like? So what does dead faith look like? And we see this in 14 to 20. And please keep your Bibles open. James gives two examples for both of these questions and he also offers two summaries for each. He offers a summary for each example as well. And the first example is where we find it in verse 14. It's the faith that claims. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save them? Now, the most important thing to be aware of as before we really delve deep into this, because this is a tricky passage, as I'm sure many of you may be aware of, and even as you just take a cursory read and you go, what in the world? There's some things that seem a bit bizarre in that. We need to understand how James is perceiving faith specifically in this passage. Now, often once we read throughout the Bible, faith is portrayed very positively. And then the, the, the opposite of it is works. 
works is often portrayed very negatively and we see that with the Apostle Paul and often we'll see James and Paul are often seen as kind of opponents in these verses. We see faith portrayed positively, works portrayed negatively, negatively, but actually what we find in this passage is the total opposite. We see that faith is portrayed negatively and works is portrayed positively. When James asks his opening question in verse 14, we can get the sense, we can almost hear the tone, and we get that throughout the whole passage. And actually, in the original language, it actually demands and implies a response, and this response is to go with the question, is this real faith? Is this faith that that James is referring to, trusting in Jesus Christ as both Saviour and Lord? Well, it's a no. It's a categorical no. This is not real faith. And the phrase I'm going to use is dead faith. This is dead faith James is talking about. And again, we need to be clear. James, he's not comparing real faith with kind of immature or, or weak faith. He's comparing real faith with no faith at all. So James introduces us to us an imaginary person, someone who, who says they have faith. It's a faith that just makes a claim. It's only a verbal proclamation. They're, they're just, it's, all, it's all talk. And what James is tackling here for his, his congregation, for those he is writing to, is, is an easy beliefism. I'm sure you kind of know where I'm going with this. An, an easy beliefism. It's a, yeah, I'll just sort of take the, the easy parts. I'll just sort of say I believe. I'll just sort of say the right things. But in reality, it has no effect upon my life. But James is he's pointed with his questions. What does he say? What good is that? What good is it to make a claim of following Jesus and not letting it affect your life? And then he points it to the person. Does that faith save you? The implication is no. But then he moves on in the the next couple of verses to think about, well, the faith that does absolutely nothing. And to say that the illustration that follows is nothing short of shocking is, is just an understatement. The the hypothetical situation that James fabricates, it has to strike us. It is absolutely shocking once we take a moment and truly think about it. Verse 15 and 16 says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, here's our question again. What good is that? Again, the person James is talking to, it's this person who is making a claim. They're saying, yep, James, I'm a Christian. I I follow Jesus. But note the audience and who James is thinking about here. Who's involved now? Not some random person. But it's actually a Christian. It's a brother or sister. It's someone that James is trying to think about. That it's, this, it's someone that is sitting in the pew next to them on a Sunday. But this person, this, this dear brother or sister, life circumstances has gotten the better of them. They, 
They are homeless. They, they have no food. They're, they're on the verge of either freezing to death or death by, by malnutrition. And it's as if James is painting in, in, in our mind's eye that you know, this great person of faith comes along with a bit of a, a, chip in the, a chirp in their step, a smile on their face, and they, they think they're just this wonderful holy person. They go, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And as I was thinking about it, it made me think of one of the famous parables Jesus told of the, the Good Samaritan. And we think of the, the two first characters that are involved, the priest and the Levite. And they see this, this desperate man in desperate need. And what do they do? They look, they see him, but they just walk on. They don't want to get their hands dirty. Oh, if, they, if they get their hands dirty, they're, they're unclean. They can't do their temple duties. Oh, they, it's, just, it's going to be a hassle. I, just, I can't do it. So they just move on. That's kind of the picture that James is painting here. You know, I'll just I'll say a nice little blessing and move on. It's just horrible. If this was ever to take place, if one of us was in such drastic, desperate need, and one of us would just go and say, you know, be blessed, be warm, be filled, and then just moved on, it would be we'd be horrified, utterly shocked. We need to ask the, the question, well. Maybe that, might, that explicit scenario may not play out in our lives. But in what ways have we committed this sin? Do we have these elements of dead faith in our lives? You know, are we more inclined to maybe send a text or, or say, very simple, I'm praying for you, than to actually go and get our hands dirty, spend time with people to give, to sacrifice? James offers a summary in verse 17 and it's simple, the faith is dead. We might read verse 17 and go, whoa, 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 come on James, have you got out of bed on the wrong side, you know, just calm down. You can't come out with statements like that but actually, I would say he can. Someone who says that they truly are a Christian, they are making the claim that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour, and then intentionally decides to ignore the desperate needs of a fellow brother or sister. How could our assessment be well, that that person is saved? They have real and true living faith. James is clear, isn't he? But then moves on to a second example of dead faith, and it's it's that true faith. Uh, we see dead faith pick sides in verse eighteen. And with the second example, James continues in the the imaginative sense. But this time it's a conversation that takes place. Read with me verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. One says, James, you know, I have have works. And well, you 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 have faith, but really, come on. James, we're on the same team, aren't you? We're, we're, we're just, you know, we're just, we're, we're wearing the same jerseys here. You know, I'm, I'm on the faith side, you might be on the work side, but, you know, we're all the same, aren't we? And, and really what, what, what's being tried to be promoted is that there's kind of two different types of Christians. There's these, there's these like, work Christians, and then there's these faith Christians. You know, the work Christians, they're very active, they're very busy, they're, they're always helping people, they're always willing to fix things, make buns, serve, visit people. 
But really, like, they don't really talk so much. They're not so much about theology and studying God's Word and, and prayer and maybe the spiritual things. You know, they, they, they're all about doing things. And then there's, like, the faith Christians. You know, they love theology. They, they can memorize the Bible. They know all the stories. Always listening to the sermons in the car. Always chirping in to offer their little theological wisdom. But really, they don't do so much hands-on work. They're not really into sort of the practical practicalities of sort of visiting people and helping out here and there. The imaginary person says, James, can we not live in a world where both of these types of people exist? What does James say? No. He says, no, absolutely not. You cannot separate these things. What does James say? He says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. See what James is saying? You will see faith evidenced through work. The gospel writers tell of an encounter of of four friends who bring their paralyzed friends to Jesus. It's a famous story. Maybe you know it. Their paralyzed friend needs healing. And they can't get close to Jesus because he's in a room and he's teaching and there's crowds just filling out through the doorway. So they devise an ingenious plan and they go up on top of the roof and they make a hole and they decide to lower their friend down before Jesus. And in Mark chapter 2 verse 5, Mark records this, says this, and when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. They hadn't said a word, but Jesus saw their faith. He witnessed the fruit of their faith. And James is making the same point. Faith can be seen. In fact, real faith must be seen. But James isn't finished. He continues. And what he says next is, I think, very particularly piercing in in verse 19. It says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Again, he's talking to these folk who are claiming to have faith. And again, you can sense the tone. You can almost sort of sense that, you know, James sort of crosses his arms. He's just looking at them. He's like, you guys think you have faith? Let me tell you something. What you believe is no different than demons. You think your your wonderful knowledge about God will get you anywhere and make you special or unique? James brings them back down to earth. Do you know what? There's demons in hell who have the exact same views and theology as you. What do they do? How do they respond? What's their emotional response? Well, they shudder. They sink at the thought of a holy God. I don't want to labour too long at this point, but I do believe that James is making such an insightful point, especially for us. You know, you know I put my hands up. I love, I love the Word of God. I love theology. And I'm sure many of us here love it as well. We love good, sound teaching. We love good, Bible-based, sound theology. But that theology in and of itself does not save. You know, we can love theology more than we can love God. And we can know a lot about God 
We can recall biblical stories. We can watch and listen to sermons every day of our lives. And James says that your theology is no better than the servants of Satan. It's piercing. It's really, really piercing, isn't it? But James in grace warns us about where we place our salvation hope. You know, our hope is not rooted in whether we can offer a fine definition of justification by faith alone, as wonderful and as great as that is. You know, when we get to heaven, it's not going to be an exam to see if we can get there or not, get through the doors or not. Our hope is rooted in a person. It's rooted in the death and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and our faith in him. Again, James offers the summary in verse 20 and he doesn't hold back. You think you can divorce faith and works from the Christian life? James said, if you want to continue living that way, your reward will be of absolutely no use. It'll be useless. He calls this person a fool. And the, actually, the, the Greek word that's uh, translated in English to useless, it gives the idea of just being totally devoid of truth. It's being empty. It's like, it's, the idea is actually, it's like carrying a massive ceramic jar that would be used for carrying water, but there's no water in it. It's just this heavy burden. And what good is that? Well, let's think about what does real faith look like a bit more positively. And again, James gives two wonderful positive examples. And we'll spend most of our time in the first one in in Abraham. Note that when James wants to prescribe real and living and active faith, he doesn't turn to the imaginary or demons, but he actually looks to the history of God's people. He's grounding real faith in real life in the real pages of the Bible. It's interesting that, isn't it? And it's a very important thing to think about. And first, the first example is the true faith in Abraham, in verses 21 to 23. And well, we, we do read these verses, and, and anyone with a, a little bit of Bible knowledge will, will start to feel uh, the tension. Uh, and maybe you've sort of got, you're, you're just eager to see what I'm going to say about all this, because these are, these are heated verses. What is James talking about Surely as we read these verses, 21 down to to 24, we're like, this is the complete opposite of the good news of the gospel. This is the opposite of how salvation occurs. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, surely. And this is where it is crucial, where we, we understand the context and specifically the meaning of words. Remember, what has James been talking about? He's been talking about dead faith. He's been talking about people who who make a claim and that's all it is. The the issue he's tackling is, as I've said, it's this easy beliefism. It's a a casual faith claim with, with no life change. As I alluded to before, often we, we see James chapter uh, 2 and Romans chapter 3 of the Apostle Paul just sort of thrown against each other. It's like, you know, two uh, pit bulls just thrown in their ring and just go, go fight it out, see what happens. That's a horrible way of thinking about it. Unlike the, the Apostle Paul who was combating people who thought their, their good standards of living could save them or indeed justify them before a good and holy God, James is actually on the other side fighting a different opponent. He is fighting those who know good works can't save them 
but actually don't see any importance in living for God. All they say is, all you have to do is believe. Your life, however you live, doesn't matter. All you have to do is believe. So we shouldn't see Paul and James fighting each other. Instead, actually, we should see them standing back to back, fighting two deadly enemies toward the gospel. And what makes this clear is the example James gives of Abraham, and specifically when this takes place in his life. Again, this is so, so clear, because Paul will use the example of Abraham as well in Romans 3. And the setting in James chapter 2 is the sacrifice of Isaac, which we read about in Genesis chapter 22. And the obvious question is this. Is James saying that because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, that it's because of that that he is declared righteous? Well, again, the the answer is no. When was Abraham deemed or or declared righteous? When is Abraham, his, his sin taken care of, where he has faith in God? Well, we actually have to go back to Genesis chapter 15 for that. And there's about a 30 year gap between 15 and 22. In Genesis 15, the Lord's covenant is made. The wonderful privileges that will span generations right up until this day and forevermore is put upon and placed upon Abraham. In 15 verse 6 it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. God's furious and promise is declared upon Abraham and he believes And he is made righteous. So what is James talking about? Well, the Bible will talk about being made righteous and righteous living. Scripture will speak of righteousness in in two senses. It's It's a little bit technical. It'll talk about positional righteousness, but also practical righteousness. We'll not get those terms in the Bible, but that's what's being conveyed. We need to be aware of it. And positional righteousness, it's the idea of being right, being made right before God. It's when we come to saving faith in Jesus. So that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that we know our sin is taken care of there and then. That there's nothing that can happen that can take us away from God's family. That we know there and then, just as the thief on the cross uh, that, that was hanging with Jesus moments before death, that he knew that he would be in paradise. That we know when we come to faith in Jesus, that we are truly saved. That is positional righteousness. That is the, the vertical, our relationship with God, is restored But we also have practical righteousness. That is practical living, righteous living, holy living, living that honours God and reflects how we should live before God. But the key is this, that practical righteousness always flows out of positional righteousness and it's never the other way around. So it's not that we do a lot of practical good deeds and then we are changed, it's that because our relationship with God has been changed and altered because of Jesus Christ, that now we live. In Genesis 15, we see positional righteousness. 
we see Abraham believe in God. In Genesis 22, we see practical righteousness with him willing to sacrifice Isaac. James is saying you can see Abraham's faith. It wasn't easy beliefism. His faith was active, fueling his obedience and works toward God. And so James can say that his faith was, was completed by his works in verse 22, or it might be in your translation, perfected. And it really, it, it's the idea of a coming of age. We see the maturity of Abraham's faith as he willingly offers Isaac. And the summary in verse 24 is that Abraham is justified. He's declared righteous. The proof of his positional righteousness is seen in his practical living. Remember how James is talking about faith here? He's talking about dead faith. So no longer do we need to be worried or or perplexed by a verse like James chapter 2 verse 24. James is saying in these words are from one Bible commentator. Someone is not justified by cold intellectual belief in Jesus that even the demons have. Instead, someone is justified by a faith that produces radical obedience and sacrifice. And how does that come about? That comes from true life-transforming change in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very briefly, the second example, which is only one verse in 25, but it's the true faith of Rahab. And to make good on his point, James rubber stamps it with this another biblical example. It wasn't just Abraham who acted like, it, like this. It was seen in others. Hence, he gives this wonderful example of Rahab, and specifically referencing Joshua chapter 2 in the Old Testament. Both these people are followers of God, but they, in one sense, couldn't be any more different. One's a leader. Another's a prostitute. One's a friend of God. One's living in enemy's territory and has very little of a, a, um, as a relationship in comparison to Abraham, to God. One's top of the social order. One's at the very bottom. Yet despite all this, Abraham, uh, or Rahab believes she risks all to take in Jewish spies into Jericho. And she's not the, the household name like Abraham, but yet her faith is clearly seen in her obedience and her works. And the summary in verse 26, the ultimate summary of this passage, James closes this section in clear-cut categorical terms and he reinforces the point he has been making throughout, hasn't he? If the spirit is separated from the body, then there is no life in the body. To the same extent, to claim to have faith which produces no works, but in that faith is dead faith and no faith at all. You know, there's, there's a lot to, to mull over in this passage, which I'm sure you appreciate, but I want to finish by just considering two application points that I feel James is presenting. I want to state a challenge and then an encouragement. Think about the challenge. It's a bit of a whirlwind, those, those verses, isn't it? Think about what James has achieved through those verses. What has that effect been upon your heart and mind? 
What has been the reaction caused in you by reading those verses? Well, certainly, and I would hope, definitely for me, is that it startles us, doesn't it? He has made us and he has caused us to think. You know, James is a pastor. He is just a good under-shepherd who has flock, who has members in his church. And he wants the very best for them. And in these verses, he's just very graciously warning his congregation about the temptation to believe they are saved when actually they are not. And that's something we need to think about. We need to think about these things. And the warning to us all is, very simply, do do we make this claim? Do we just make a claim of faith that actually there's no fruit? We need to think about this. The main point James is pressing upon us is that true faith surely compels us to action. This is a challenge for us all. The, The gospel of Jesus Christ is so much greater than we often realize and give it credit for. It is that life transforming, that when God has saved you, he has taken you from the kingdom of darkness and he has lifted you and brought you into the kingdom of life. It's not that God has done that and said, well, all the very best with that. You know, I'll see you in heaven. But that he has committed himself to lifelong, the lifelong process of making you more like himself So that when we are saved, we then continue to be saved, continue to be more like Jesus. And we see that in the evidence of our lives. And think of it this way. What is the primary way God wants to show off his glory and his grace in this world? Is it through creation? Is it through wonderful mountaintop experiences? They can help. But it's through us. It's through his people. It's through his redeemed people, the church of Jesus Christ. You and I are transformed people, are called to reflect his goodness. But how often do we see this just as a bit of a chore? That we have to live a certain way and obey certain rules and commandments? famous missionary, which will be very uh, familiar to many, and the former great English cricketer C.T. Studd said this famous words, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Christ has taken care of our greatest enemy. Sin, death, Satan, we have victory. He has done what we could not The words of what a wonderful song. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But as we think about that, let us think of the encouragement of these verses. You know, as we grow in our love of Jesus, real, active faith will flow. The language of John 15, if we abide in him, We will bear much fruit. James knows as much as we know. We can't do it all. It's not about how much or how often. It's it's about whether we've ever done these things at all or intend to do them or want to do them. But there has to be an urge, doesn't there? 
Do I want us to be encouraged that if there is fruit in our lives, that is a sure sign that there is life. That we are connected. And the fruit of our faith is evidence, which actually in turn offers us assurance of our salvation, which is a grace from our God. And what a wonderful thing it would be, I thought, that in the next week or so that we would encourage one another for all maybe the the unseen tasks that go on in our church that we would take note and that we would go to different people and say, you know, that is wonderful that you do that. You know, we can't have enough encouragement uh, in in our lives. But what a wonderful celebration that would be to encourage one another in our pursuit of loving Christ by doing that this week. How will the followers of Jesus be identified? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You will know them by their love. How they sacrifice and give for one another. Let us be those people. People who claim faith but prove it through their life and living. And will God be glorified. Amen.